Maui Nui is on a mission to help balance axis deer populations for the good of our environment, communities, and food systems on the island of Maui. They've shared over 126,000 pounds of nutrient-dense protein with the Maui community. Secure your spot now. Become a snack subscriber and join in helping to build more resilient food and ecosystems on Maui. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I-Venison.com. And use promo code BEAR for 20% off your first order. You know what my favorite text is? A waypoint in the Onyx Hunt app to a goblin turkey. The list on the Onyx Hunt app features for chasing turkeys is long, but knowing exact public and private boundaries and land ownership details will help you find more places to hunt, whether that's on public or private. I'll be toting the Hunt app through the spring woods in a few states this year, and I recommend you do the same if you want more turkeys on your table. Also, Onyx has a special offer for you. Use code BEARGREASE to receive 20% off your membership at onyxmaps.com hunt this spring. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. My name is Clay Newcomb, and this is a production of the Bear Grease podcast called the Bear Grease Render, where we render down, dive deeper, and look behind the scenes of the actual Bear Grease podcast. Presented by FHF Gear, American-made, purpose-built hunting and fishing gear that's designed to be as rugged as the places we explore. Guys, we've got an exclusive Bear Grease discount code for FHF gear. That's Fish Hunt Fight Gear. I've been using their products for the last year, and I love carrying my gear in a chest rig or my binos in their bino harness. It's easier and more accessible than a backpack, and it doesn't get in the way when I'm riding my mule. For a limited time, you can head over to fhfgear.com forward slash Grease. And listeners to this here podcast get a discount on purchases for your FHF gear system. And you can see how I build my gear system. So go to FHFgear.com forward slash Bear Grease for a special code if you're buying stuff from FHF gear. Check it out. Fish Hunt Fight FHF gear. Just for the record, now that we're not producing a show for Mark Kenyon, I would like to just establish with a group that now Clay's in charge. Clay's the producer. Okay. So no longer, there's no need to look back to Andreas anymore. Okay? Thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Phew. Phew. Oh, is there etiquette? Hey, this is, this is really an experiment, and I don't really want to put like a lot of pressure on you guys Too late. but you know there was there are groups of people over time that have done things that were monumental 
And when you're swinging for the fence, like you're either going to strike out or you might hit it over the fence. And so this is this is the first time in the Bear Grease surrender history that we have had an entirely new crew of Bear Grease guests. Essentially, you guys are like the astronauts that went to the moon first. And people are like, man, I don't know if they'll ever come back or not. This is wild. So congratulations. Are you um, insinuating this won't? air <laughs> okay if this goes really bad i'll just call in the the regulars you good, know for a quick bear grease render no welcome Scratch to the bear grease render welcome thank no you, i'm you. thrilled absolutely thrilled thank to you. have a new cast of characters which i which i will introduce so we make a big deal out of out of introductions on the bear grease render okay we are we're in the field so we are not in the typical bear grease studio at my office, we are in the field. You're we are a loose abroad. definition of in the field, I'd say. <laughs> in the field, meaning we're not where we usually are. But I have many, many guests with me today. Mark Kenyon of Wired to Hunt is hello, here. Hello, Yeah, Mark. It's Ever, good to be here. Mark and I have been hunting together this week. With Mark is his crew of, his production crew. So I'm going to start to my right, and we have Matt Gagnon. How close was that, Matt? <laughs> you know what? That's a perfect mix of the both of the correct okay, ways to say, say it. So it's say ideal. It right. So we, we say Gagnon, or it could be Gagnon. it could be Gagnon if you're from the old country. Gagnon. But we'll go with Gagnon. That's like the... Okay, so tell me what you do for Meat Eater. I am officially an associate producer, and in the field, I am the go-get-me-this guy. The guys. Glue, the glue guy. Yeah. Did you guys know that the first video that Matt ever produced for Meat Eater, he was the... Were you the director on that? There was multiple. Officially, yeah, it was a it was a team effort, but yeah, I put in a lot of legwork so, on that. It was the first time I worked with Matt with Meteor. We did this mm-hmm. uh, bear pistol defense video, and it has two point seven million views on YouTube right now. Smashing success by Matt. Yeah, mm. so I set the bar high initially, so I, I feel like I I peaked in my first effort. To your right, Andreas Atai. Good job, dude. You're Persian now. Yeah. So, Andreas, tell us what you do for Meat Eater. I produce for Meat Eater. So you're a producer. I'm a producer. What does that mean? I didn't. I wouldn't have known what that meant before. I so my here. wife likes to think that it's like wedding planning, okay. except for a TV show. You get all the pieces to the puzzle together, and you have an event. Okay, and that everybody is a good goes way. home happy. That's a good way to put it. Shout out to Janaea. <laughs> she so, must. She must be an angel. I think I, she I is. Agree. She's the real trooper of the crew. Completely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you've been on the shoot with us this week, and we'll we'll talk about our hunt and what we did. You you've done this kind of stuff in other for other companies though. Other capacities, yes. This is my uh, first event w- with or gig with a docu series of this sort. Docu series is that yeah. what we're calling these? I I imagine it is. It's a it's a, a series of documenting Mark Kenyon slaying it. To your right, Tyler Emmett. Tyler, welcome, man. Hello. Thanks for having me. Where are you from? Uh, originally from Carpinteria, California, but I live in Bend, Oregon now. Oh, that reminds me. Andreas is from L.A. Great point. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> from, I'm from yeah, Carpinteria. Very we important to, point. We to, we'll come back to you, Tyler. We're going to spend a lot of time with you. Um, I would like to point out that Andreas is from L.A. People might have already insinuated that just by hearing him, though. Yeah. We, they might have already caught on. Did y'all notice that James Lawrence gave him some grief from being from California? I loved it that so quickly he was able to... (laughs) Already he picked up like Andreas is and should be the target of of jabs. I I feel like I'm James Lawrence's favorite now. He gave me a big old hug. Mm -hmm. He didn't hug you, Clay. 
Not the way he hugged me. You should, you should be jealous, Clay. <laughs> Are you gauging hugs? I've known this man for a week. You've known this man your entire life, and he gave me a better hug than he gave you. Was man, it a hug hey, from like Andres, a wayward child? You have a very, very good skill at connecting with people quickly. I will say that. You and Juju were like this, like quickly. James Lawrence. So I, that's I, like good to, skill. I like to know everyone. Man, maybe that's something about guys from California. Tyler. Okay, back to Tyler. Man, you do a lot of work for, so you're a videographer. And do a lot of work for Meat Eater in a bunch of different capacities. Yep. Uh, kind of all the shows across the gamut from Cal in the Field to Meat Eater Hunts to now this. First time with Mark. And sometimes on the main show with Steve. And I don't know. They just, wherever they tell me to go, I go. What Meat Eater shows have you done with Steve? Well, I first worked on Stars in the Sky, which was not the oh, Meat Eater really? show. But that was back in, I don't know when we filmed that, 2015. Went to the Fish Shack. Yeah. And then did the Wyoming Mule Deer episode i think it was in season nine where okay. we went with uh on horseback up to wyoming and got oh, mule deer yeah. and then did the texas episode with jesse griffiths and jt van zandt this year in february we did the squirrel you came to arkansas yeah, which was a highlight season 10. yeah during that snow you squirrel know hunt. yeah that was did you know that so the guy that y'all hunted with in wyoming the guide and his son what was his name Stuart and Landon Peterson. Stuart was the dad. Landon was the son. Okay, so Stuart Peterson. Mark, did you know that Stuart Peterson that was on that season nine backcountry Wyoming hunt mm-hmm. is the boy from where the red fern grows? Somebody just told me that this week. Um, but maybe it was him. Was it you, Tyler? Billy. You me yeah. That? You told me that. Billy I, Coleman. Yeah. So it's a great, great, great movie and book. Do you ever watch a movie like that or read a book like Where the Red Fern Grows and just be like, why didn't I think of that? Because it's such a classic American story that is just so simple and so rich. And people who aren't coon hunters, people who aren't even necessarily rural people can like watch where the red fern grows and identify with it. I thought it was fascinating that this old outfitter was Billy Coleman in the movie. Yeah, that's pretty cool. That movie was shot over here near Tahlequah, Oklahoma, which is like a couple hours from here. Yeah, they were great, great guys. Really yeah, they really guys. seemed like it. Yeah, genuine article. I think he did the child actor thing for a while and then realized it wasn't for him and just, you know, started living a, a different life. You can tell when Billy Coleman in Where the Red Fern Grows runs like down a gravel road and with bare feet, you're like, this dude's a real outdoors kid. Yeah, yeah. But he was from Wyoming. He played a pretty good Southerner. Yes. Yeah, he was from Wyoming. But yeah, yeah. He, he does. I think he's a general contractor and a uh, outfitter now. And his son is a cattle rancher. And yeah, they seem like the real deal. Yeah, they are. They're definitely the real deal. Really nice guys. Yeah. So you do a lot of videography of all kinds for me, Dieter. That's yeah. cool, man. Yeah. To your right, Mark Kenyon. You you making me French? <laughs> <laughs> I just we're going around and, and like Gagnon, Atai, Emet, Emeto, Emeto. Yeah, Mark Kenyon. Mark, welcome to Bear Grease, man. Thank this you, is sir. like a big deal. Glad to be here. So great. everybody, most people know who Mark Kenyon is. Mark Kenyon has Wired to Hunt, which is inside of the meat eater, the meat eater world. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's sometimes I think it's hard for people to understand kind of meat eater. They might know Wired to Hunt and not realize unless they're paying attention that that, that is a meat eater brand, but right. it's your brand and who you are. Yeah, I think of meat eaters as the umbrella. And then there's all these sub brands and personalities and folks underneath it. And yeah. Wired Hunt's a thing I started on my own many years ago. And, and then uh, when Meat Eater became a new thing, me and Steve merged it all together. And you here were we are. one of the first guys that came into Meat Eater. Were yeah. you not? Yeah, one of the very, very first, like number three or something like that. Okay. 
So he sought you out. He did. He called me one day. Did you know Steve before that? I did. We weren't like close buddies or anything. We drank a beer once and talked about books and we'd exchanged a few emails. And then one day I was sitting in Grand Teton National Park with my wife, camped out, living in our camper. And I got a phone call from Steve Rinell. I'm like, what in the world is he calling me about? The rest is history. So that was what year? 2017. Seems like a long time ago. It is. So we're going to come back to Mark because we, we're going to talk about our hunt. Ultimately, by the end of this, we're going to talk about the Warner Glenn podcast, number two. To Mark's right, my left, Joe, also known as Big Joe. Big Joe is not, he's not big like volume-wise or like mass-wise, but he's very tall. Joe Vanekout. Yeah, First Joe, try. this is your, so you're a videographer? <coughs> Cinematographer. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> wow. Can you, des- can you describe the difference for me? For real. I mean, I mean, if to to most people in the world, that there is no difference. But within production, I would say cinematographers have like a little bit, you know, a little bit. Uh, is this a self-proclaimed title? No, no I, mean, I mean, you get credit credited as a cinematographer. And well, what would the guy do that was a videographer? I mean, I don't know. I don't want to throw. Come any, on, like, this feels it, like Joe. an ego thing here. Is what I mean, I'm catching yeah, sure. up to. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's more I, artistic. I mean, more just maybe a certain level of. Uh, Bigger um, paycheck? Certain level of production, maybe, reflects the cinematographer. I don't know. Okay. Certain cameras, maybe. I don't know. Okay. We do, Ho- we do have, an, we have an LA here. producer here that could chime yeah. in on yeah, that. Yeah, what, what, what what's the difference? So since digital cameras became a thing and brands have brought in folks to shoot, this role has become a videographer where they're shooting video of content and they're also editing or directing. They're like a jack of all trades or a Jane of all trades where a cinematographer just specializes in making cinema images. Okay. So they operate on, on a different scale typically. Okay. But to the general public, the term videographer is more familiar than a cinematographer or a director of photography or camera okay. operator. It says cinematographer on our time card. So, yeah, yeah, there you go. How does filmmaker fit into this? Just skipping, just jumping above all of it, and you know, I'm a filmmaker. Well, these this this is like not my film. Like I'm mm. producing images and making things look good. But if I was like, for instance, I'm making my own film, like as an independent cinematographer, like my own documentary film. So that's I guess qualifies me as a filmmaker. But for this show, just the cinematographer. Do you guys as as videographers, as, excuse me, <laughs> as cinematographers, <laughs> and as uh, that's kind of like the difference in being a someone saying, "Oh, you're a raccoon hunter," and you go, "No, I'm a coon hunter." I I, I don't know, and it'd be like, "What's what's the difference?" Oh, never mind, that was a joke. Okay, okay. As cinematographers, as producers, like four of you are, and the, do you do you watch a lot of films? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like for style examples and inspiration and lighting and and uh, color. So when and, you're watching a movie, you're thinking about all those things. Oh yeah, I mean, some people some people can't stand watching films with me. There's things just because I'm like interpreting it a little bit different, maybe or something, or yeah. paying attention to certain things. But sometimes they appreciate it. They're like, oh, I didn't think about it that way. My wife has become better at doing that than I am. <laughs> so she'll just predict shows right off the bat. It's fun. She's uh, we've switched switched sides. What do you think about? Do you think there is more advantage in uh, which, watching other people's work? I think there's an argu- argument to be made for somebody that maybe never watched anybody else's work and just went off like raw, just their interpretation as opposed to being influenced. Because I think we're heavily influenced in anything. Like if you turned me loose 
in the mountains of Arkansas to go kill a deer with a bow. And I had never had any instruction, but I understood the patterns of deer and the like I think I would probably do it way different than the way I do it now. It's just been ingrained in me. I mean, part of the whole shtick of what we're doing this week is that we're hunting a particular way because it's the way that it's a traditional way to mm-hmm. hunt. It's not necessarily the most efficient way. Do you see what I'm saying? Yep. So, and I realize we gain so much by watching how other people do things, but sometimes I wonder if that inhibits us more than it helps us sometimes. What are your thoughts on films? And then Mark, we'll go back to deer hunting. You know, I think like, you know, like he was saying, getting inspiration from other stuff. I think, you know, mimicry is the best form of flattery kind of thing, where if you're, you're kind of learning from people that you admire and applying that to your, yourself and your own cinematic process and as cheesy as that sounds, but um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like it's it's hard in a vacuum that doesn't exist, right? You're always going to be influenced by everything you watch and yeah. consume. So, but you know, there's off a lot of stuff, different rules of shooting that you need to know because you know you can't cross the line and shoot. You know, it's hard for the editor, so you kind of have to have a basic understanding of yeah. of coverage of a scene to. So I think if you just kind of came out of the box without any of that it could yeah. be a little bit challenging for an editor yeah. or whatever so especially because the language of film <laughs> has evolved over a century and so we are accustomed to a certain language and once you become a master of that craft you can change the uh, the rules to that language i see yeah but you you know something that your parents brought up last night when we were talking was the same idea of how much do you watch or how much you pay attention our art or art in general is all about sensory understanding. So if you had no hearing, no sight, you know, no touch, could you could you make anything? You know, like what would you do? You wouldn't know that that existed. Mm-hmm. So even if we just look at a tree, we can be inspired by that and somehow capture that in our paintings or our. There's inspiration no matter what. You, you don't have a choice. You just you are only able to build on experiences you've had in a Mm -hmm. sensory world. Yeah, I I realize it's probably kind of a romantic, unrealistic idea to think you would be not influenced by other people. But what if we took a Paleolithic Native American who would have the full capacity for learning as us, and you could take him out of that world and put him into our world, train him on a video camera, the most creative of all the bunch. You could do some tests and figure out which one was most creative. He would know the video he would know the equipment and he could make a video. What would it look like? How would it be different than ours? We're getting deep in the weeds, boys. This is great. I got a thought on that just in terms of we've chosen to work within a really set, like set confines. We have a, a, a episode length, like where we yeah. have a time limit. So, you know, if you take someone in that situation, they may think that the, the full sunrise is the most incredible thing and film it. And it's a, you know, a three hour segment that doesn't translate to, you know, what we're trying to do. You're, you're, we're, we've chosen to work within this really like strict yeah. set of rules. So there's, I think that limits capacity a little bit. Yeah, yeah. You know, you got to get everything done in 22 minutes. It has to be a cohesive story. There has to be a start and an end and an arc. And Whatever yeah. it was they produced, I just don't think it would do well on YouTube. <laughs> I think <laughs> the caveman. I, I actually think that the caveman would have a really good chance because we all, we've all evolved with similar understanding of beauty, yeah. even across different cultures, right? Like the, indigenous americans versus the european americans like they they understood art in a very similar format yeah like we've I, I think they'd have a good chance of making something really sick i think i think we'd be surprised at how yeah similar our intrigue would be i think they would make a like a hour-long documentary about fire that's what i think they would do 
and Buffalo. Fire, Buffalo, and the Sunrise. I mean, I would watch that. I would that watch that. Fantastic. Throw some Kevin Costner in there and a felt cowboy hat. Perfect. <laughs> are you Are you saying what we do is so easy a caveman could do it? Like the Geico <laughs> commercials? I think that's exactly. what he's getting there. Exactly. No, hey, so Mark, why don't you tell everybody kind of what we've been doing this week? Yeah, well, the gist of this show that we're producing is that I travel across the country to meet up with interesting characters, interesting deer hunters that represent a unique style, tradition, or culture within the whitetail hunting world. And I'm tasked with meeting with this person and mentoring under them, studying them for a day or so to get the gist of their area, their place, and how they do what they do. And then I need to go out and try to pull it off myself. So I got to try to replicate, I got to try to guinea pig their style in their terrain and their stomping grounds. So... This time, we came to visit you and James Lawrence to learn about Arkansas deer hunting, hunting in the mountains, hunting in big timber, big forests, public land, and doing it the traditional way, packing in with a mule, staying out there a while, camping in the backcountry. And uh, so that's what we did. We came out here, met with you guys, and tried to hunt. Yeah. Everybody that is is followed along with the Bear Grease podcast would have would know James Lawrence. He was on the second or third episode. Mm-hmm. So we did a, a full episode with him. The Shedhorn Buck. Yeah, yeah. What 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 were your impressions of James? James was even better than I expected. You know, I think that you know, having listened to him on the on the podcast and heard, you know, stories from you about him, I knew he would be a great deer hunter. I knew he'd be a character. But what I didn't expect fully was just how warm and welcoming he was. You know, how quick he was to open his arms to you and be yeah. excited for you and share with, with us everything he could and yeah. the, the genuine excitement he had to be a part of this with us uh, was just, it was really nice. Yeah, And uh, I'll tell you, obviously a heck of a deer hunter to kill the deer he has in the places he's done it. I mean, yeah. I could tell it was impressive when I went and saw the antlers on his wall at the beginning of the trip, but it's even more impressive now at the end of the trip. We So the first day we went to James' house, we spent an hour or two with him, talking with him, and then we went out into the Mountains National Forest here in Arkansas, and there was a whole gaggle of us. There's six of us here, so we all, we packed in on the mule, and so the way that the way that James, you know, he did all kind of hunting, but his favorite way to hunt was to pack in with a mule or a horse. He's a horse. Pack in with a horse and carry enough stuff that he could hunt for an extended period of time and stay way back in the woods. And it, it basically is kind of like a modern version of a long hunt, mm-hmm. you know. And so that's what we did. And, you know, there's different layers of national forests. You know, there's um, there's some national forest that is a budding private land that has a lot of clear cuts and a lot of, you know, man-made alterations to the landscape, which typically means more deer. Mm -hmm. Then there's what I would call like interior mountain hunting, which would be these mountain ranges and areas that just kind of have, it's all going to have some timber, timber improvement and different things, but kind of this interior areas that, probably have less deer densities than anywhere else and that's where we tried to go yep we camped you guys camped i actually left because i wasn't really a part i was just a part of the film getting mark back in here 
and then Mark was on his own. So I didn't camp with you guys. But uh, how many days did you hunt, Mark? Well, we had budgeted four hunt days, the first of which would be a morning with you where you'd be showing me around and giving me your perspective on how you would approach, you know, just basically how you and James would hunt an area like this. And I was picking your brain about all that. And then we would have, I would have three and a half days solo after that. So that's how much time we had. We didn't end up using all that time, but that's how much time we had available. And we got a late start, so we were supposed to camp in and get in there the night before, but because of all sorts of outside of our hands circumstances, we got a late start, so we got in a day late, and we left a little early. Yeah. So it was short. It was a short, long hunt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, do you want? Do we want to tell? Yeah, the conclusion. I mean, talking to me, just kind of describe the terrain and kind of what we did, and then just your hunt. Well, if you're willing to spill the beans. Oh, why not? Yeah, the Bear Grease Render Podcast is as good a place as any. All right. So we, like you mentioned, we packed in our stuff on Izzy on your mule. And that was definitely the easiest hike in I've ever had for a backcountry hunt because she carried my backpack too. I felt guilty, mm-hmm. um, but it was nice. And I never uh, feel guilty loading a mule down to the hilt. I think of every what I whisper under my breath, or when I'm if I'm by myself, I actually say it out loud to the mule. I say, "I feed you every day of your life. You can do this for me today, mm-hmm. and not throw a fit." <laughs> well, you know it was funny though. We we talked about this while we were filming the other day. But watching her walk out, I got to thinking, like, is she like a hunt dog? Like, is this her Super Bowl? Has she been sitting in her, you know, sitting in the pasture, sitting in the barn for weeks, just waiting for this chance to get out and do her work? Right. And you said, nope, <laughs> she's she's not excited about this at all. Yeah. No, that, that was an insightful question, and I've never heard it asked like that. People have asked, you know, do you think they like doing this? And my, I don't, we'll go through it again. Uh, because it's an interesting thought, you know, does this, is this animal pumped when I put it in the trailer? Cause it knows it's going to go out in the back country and get out of the, you know, the, the pasture for a couple of days. And I believe the answer is no. And that is partly because I read a book years ago called evidence-based horsemanship, where a neurologist and a horse trainer got together and wrote a book that changed the equine training world. Because for years, people anthropomorphized horses and mules because a horse might treat Tyler different than he'd treat Joe just like he would. And and people would, would presume that, well, that horse doesn't like me or that horse, you know, doesn't, it's mean to me and not to him. And basically it affected the way people trained and handled their horses. Well, these neurologists came in and really studied the science, the brain science of an equine animal. And basically, they have, they don't have a place in their brain to like you or not like you. Like it is not there. They have an extremely big part of the brain that governs the physical movement of their body. Like basically, if the brain were an engine, like a big chunk of that engine would be dedicated to actually driving their body, you know, this thousand pound body, even more so than like, the human body, a very small part of that brain would be dedicated to the ability to reason and think, which they basically don't have the ability to do. Like you can put out, the best example was like, you put out a hay bale for a horse. He is not thinking, I'm going to stash some of that hay away for 
next week when I won't have hay. Like he just eats all the hay. Point being, that animal, the the main things that animal is worried about is the main flight response. The main response that that animal has is flight response to predation. That is a massive factor in their life is staying safe and breeding and then having a full belly. And so like a kind of like Matt, Matt pointed to himself. I didn't <laughs> that on breeding. <laughs> Matt, so a dog, though, a primary instinct in that dog is a prey drive to go get something. And so we're on the same page with that animal. We want to go get a quail. We want to go get a bear or whatever. Anyway, I think that Izzy is happy. The other thing is that they fit into a, a, a dominance. Everything about training mules and horses is about dominance. And by dominance, I don't mean like physically dominating the animal. But that animal, when it views you, Andreas, mm-hmm. all, the only way it knows how to register you is, am I in charge or is he in charge? Who's in charge here? And so if you establish that you're in charge, then that animal will do what you want. If it figures out that you're intimidated by it or that it can bully you, it absolutely will. Mm-hmm. We used to read our kids a book called If You Give a Moose a Muffin. Do you get read that to yeah, your kids? Yeah, it's a good one. Yep. Yeah, so if you give a moose a muffin, he'll come in your house and want a drink of water. If you give him a glass of water, then he'll come in your house and he'll want to sit on the couch. It's a cute little kid's book. So if you give a mule a muffin, you're in trouble. So you always got to keep him in line. So You know, there's a future for you in children's books, Clay. Yeah. You do the Arkansas version of that. <laughs> <laughs> if you give a mule a muffin. <laughs> give a mule a an acre. <laughs> do you regret giving Izzy an apple now? No, not at all. Okay. She, she worked checking. for me. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. mules. Yeah, I'm going to give the Cliff Notes version of this because I know we want to get to other things. Um Basic gist is we, we packed in there a few miles, we set up a base camp, and then you and I struck out for a morning of kind of still hunting through the mountains, and basically I was just picking your brain on all the things I'd want to know. What's the kind of stuff you think you're, they're feeding on out here? What kind of habitat are they keying in on? What are the terrain features that these deer are using? Uh, you were pointing out a lot of differences to me. I'd say one of the things that stood out the most to me was how you should interpret sign in a place like this compared to how you might interpret a sign or observations in a place in the Midwest where there's much higher deer densities because very right. low deer density here. Right. And so you talked about making a chart, which I think we should make. And I think we should sell it on the mediator store. <laughs> this yeah. would be one rub in Arkansas equals 15 rubs in Iowa. One deer sighting in Arkansas equals 20 deer in Iowa, whatever it was. Right. Um, because there's so little sign of, of any life out there when it came to yeah. whitetails, at least we saw, we fought, excuse me, we saw zero droppings. Yeah. Just the, the several small tracks we saw when you and I were together, we found one little dinky rub and we saw one just half, half I can't cuss on this podcast, kind of one, one real small little scrape. <laughs> uh, so it wasn't terribly encouraging from a sign perspective, but you were telling me, oh, this is pretty great. So, so that was eye-opening to me. Yeah. Um, so I got the lay of the landing and just yeah. kind of saw how you would do it and how James had taught you to do it and, and try to get enough of an, an understanding to be able to head out there on my own. That was, that was yeah. the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then walk us through the hunts. So you had four hunts. Yep. And so you, you 
Clay took off. You took off. Went home. Right. Went and we were elsewhere. we were hunting high saddles. Yeah. So this was one big mountain that had a few saddles in it, and and both you and James had reiterated to me multiple times that saddles were really the name of the game. It was a terrain feature in these big ridges that deer would use to cross yeah. the big ridge, and while there's a number of different ways deer use these mountains, a number of different terrain features they might right. relate to, saddles were, were the most huntable. I think that was a key thing. It's like you yeah. could try different things, but this was a way that was particularly huntable. And, and it had has a lot to do with the wind yeah. higher up on the mountains. If you got a if you got a south wind, you actually get a south wind. Yep. If you're on the side of the mountain with a south wind, it's going to swirl. It's going to hit this mountain and do all kind of weird stuff. So the saddles are huntable. And, and what I said to you, and and what I wanted to reiterate, because there's a lot of guys that kill good deer in this part of the world that probably would be like, well, I don't hunt that many high saddles. There's other ways to do it. You know, in a deer's world in, in, in this part of the country, like he's probably doing eight things really consistently. This is one of them. You know, I mean, he's going to bed probably in similar areas on the mountain. He's traveling benches in similar areas. He's feeding in similar areas. He's getting water every day somewhere. Yep. But, Basically, it's just like you can kill them in saddles because a saddle is a low spot on a long ridge. And so that's just kind of what we keyed in on. Yeah. So. Yeah. So we were looking for saddles. Some little bit of sign to just confirm just that, yes, there are deer. That there were deer coming through there. Yep. And then we wanted to find those things close to acorns because we figured that's that's what they're keyed in on feeding. So that first night. What, what, did, what did you say? What kind of? Oh, yeah. Acorns. A- acorns. Oh. Uh, Oh, acorns. That's what I meant. Yeah, acorns. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, acorns. Gotcha. <laughs> so we found we found all those things in a couple spots. And so that first night I went into the first saddle. It was a nice, thick, brushy saddle. Brought my uh, incredible cameraman, Tyler and Joe, with me. <laughs> we climbed up in trees and we decided we'd sit up high that first night because it kind of seemed like a destination that you needed to get a good vantage point of. So we did the tree thing that night. We saw one doe. Out of range. We went back the next morning, saw zip. Which I was thrilled about. Yeah. When I when you came back to camp, I was like, oh, you saw a deer? Yep. Good. Yep. So that was you know, somewhat encouraging. Next day, saw nothing. So that afternoon, I decided, you know what? It's time to take another page out of James's book and do the still hunting thing. So that evening, I still hunted my way through an acorn flat, through that first saddle, up another knob to this other ridge, and I came across another spot with, with a bunch of acorns that weren't there the first day when you and I walked through. Really? Because they weren't as thick in this spot. So I saw that, and I was like, oh, interesting. And then I glanced over to my left, and I saw this brushy point coming off the main ridge. And it caught my eye. I hadn't noticed it when you and I were out there, and I caught, I just caught a glimpse of this. And I thought, geez, that looks like something should be bedding in that. So I just stood and glassed for a while, and then I edged my way off the little trail, and I just started side-hilling toward that just to get a better look. And as I'm heading towards that, I find a rub. Multiple saplings all rubbed up. So I thought, well, this looks good. And I sat, and I watched that brushy point for a while, and then slipped on past that around the knob, and on the other side, another ripped-up tree. So now I found two rubs in the same little knob, and then I looked at onyx and i noted that that little tiny scrape we found the day before was just on the other side of this too so all this sign which now is the most sign we've seen anywhere on this trip is right around this knob and there's a second saddle that drops off that knob and so i thought to myself as i'm seeing all this and these things are looking good better and better 
I thought, well, why don't I just sit in the side of this knob and watch that saddle and see if this kind of combination of factors pans out. Did that. Saw three does that night come across mm. that saddle out of, out of range. So the next morning, my plan was to head back in there, first light, slip into that saddle and get closer to where they crossed. And to make a long story short, we ended up seeing several deer move through that saddle. And one of them, around 9.45. Late in the morning. Late in the morning. One of them came crunch, crunching just over my right shoulder. I'm sitting on the ground. And I heard a twig snap. Turn my head to the right. Look past my cameraman here, Mr. Tyler. And I just see antlers coming down the ridge. Not far. Not far away at all. And um, eight-point buck was walking straight past, just quartering away. And lo and behold, we got the camera on him. I got the, the gun up. History. Let a let a let a shot off. Muzzle loader hunting. So muzzle loader hunting. Muzzle loader. Could have killed him with a bow. He was he was at bow range probably when I shot him. Wow. And um, yeah, killed me an eight point Arkansas buck. Awesome man. It was wild. Yeah. It was not. I, I didn't expect you that know, to happen. The way the way things are going. You. Having a you don't you don't realize how much pressure is on something like this, and not not from the, even the video perspective. But if you had come to Arkansas and you said Clay I got three and a half days, and I want to kill a buck, I mean that's a pretty short amount of time, really mm-hmm. anywhere to go yeah. hunting. I mean you could hunt in some of the best places in the country and say you got three and a half days Tight. to kill a representative deer here. So and to do it here, I'd, I'd say was a we were all really happy that you got this a buck. is yeah. I think this is your one of the two top hardest hunts I have for you this season. Yeah, so there's a series of hunts that Mark's doing. Mm-hmm. I don't envy you for this, Mark. It's a tricky endeavor. It's funny, you know, me and Ben were the ones who came up with this idea and planned right. out the hunts and planned out what we're going to do. And, you know, a year ago when we were first spitballing this whole idea, like, man, this is a great concept. This is going to be fun. This is going to be really interesting. And it never really, somehow, I'm some kind of idiot for not really thinking this through, but it didn't really crossed my mind until i was actually going out in these hunts just how crazy it was to try to pull this kind of thing off and make a tv show like most all hunting tv shows especially whitetail are you know going to some big managed fancy property and you got seven days and it's already preset for you or going to some outfitter and it's all ready to rock and roll there's big bucks all over the place nobody goes to some random place spends a day talking to someone learning about their area and then tries to go figure it out all on their own with just three days to hunt. Yeah. It's not a recipe for success. Well, it's, to know. It's, it's, it's super a, difficult. It is a very interesting concept, and I, I can't wait to see to see them all and see it all put yeah. together. It's so. it's it's going to be interesting, and, and we were very fortunate that this one worked out. It, it very well couldn't have. The increased know, yeah. pressure of time, time is such is a mental, mental game, you too. Know, I told Mark, if he was here for seven full days, like I would have thought, man, we'll, we'll, he'll get on a, a good buck in seven full days, but Three and a half days is way different than seven full. And days. with the muzzleloader, which you don't hunt muzzleloader cons- like as consistently nope. as somebody out here would. Like you're a bow hunter primarily, mm-hmm. and those muzzleloaders are difficult. There's always something going wrong. There's with yeah, there really is. Uh, the more I mess with muzzleloaders, the more I realize there's so many things that can go wrong with them. I rather shoot a bow any day of the week. I would too. Really? Yeah, hundred percent. I trust a bow a lot more than a muzzleloader. Yeah. Ready to win Mother's Day and cement your reputation as the best gift giver in the family? 
Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. She'll love looking back on these memories and seeing what you're up to today. Even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep updating mom's frame with new photos, so it's the gift that keeps on giving. And this is not a joke. Juju Nukem has an Aura frame, and we share photos, and they're incredible. Also, my mother-in-law has one. We have them. They truly are really good, really high quality. The Aura frame is easy to set up. It takes just two minutes to set up a frame using the Aura app. It also adjusts the display depending on light levels in the room to maintain the true color of your photos. For real, the digital screen is amazing. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame when you use code BEAR, B-E-A-R, BEAR. That's AuraFrames.com. Use code BEAR at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Whitetail Institute launched the food plot revolution in 1988 with a concentration on research and real-world testing of forage products specifically for whitetail deer. Whitetail Institute's research and development team of agronomy experts provide effective, personalized service. I've been using Imperial Whitetail Clover for a long time in a food plot back behind my house. In 2007, I killed the biggest buck of my life over an Imperial Whitetail Clover small quarter acre food plot. Imperial Whitetail Clover is the only clover scientifically developed through years of selective breeding. Clover Extreme Genetic Stability provides extreme cold tolerance, disease, and drought tolerance. It really does. Clover is coated with Whitetail Institute's Rain Bond, a polymer coating added for enhanced seedling survivability. They have an exclusive offer for Bear Grease listeners, 15% off Imperial Clover when you use the code BEAR at whitetailinstitute.com. That's whitetailinstitute.com and use code BEAR for 15% off. Sport Dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry. Born in 2003 in Knoxville, Tennessee, Sport Dog was forged by a passionate group of hunters and dog trainers who intimately understood the challenges of the field and the special connection between hunters and their dogs. The people at Sport Dog know that having a well-trained hunting dog is more than just having a reliable partner. It's a commitment to their safety and unlocking their full potential. The Sport Dog promise to customers is simple. Gear the way you design it. Every product Sport Dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field, ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter. Trust Sport Dog, where innovation meets passion, to elevate your hunting experience and strengthen the bond with your local companion. Using tracking equipment on my squirrel and coon dogs is extremely important to me to track my squirrel dogs and my one old coon dog that's not very good. Get 20% off your first purchase using the code BEARGREASE. Go to www.sportdog.com slash BEARGREASE to learn more. Mark, you're, you're an upbeat guy pretty much all the time. How are you feeling at like 9 a.m. that morning? So you yeah. fired the shot at 9.45. Where was your head at at like 9? Yeah, it's a great question. And in, in my very speedy recollection of the hunt right there, I made it sound like it was action-packed and quick. And Yeah, you know, that sounded pretty action-packed. Yeah, I saw deer and then nothing and then a couple deer and then nothing. 
but you got to understand that those deer sightings, you know, the one deer that was like a four second deer encounter the first night. And the next night it was five seconds of them very quickly passing through. And then, then I killed, but that was over the course of, you know, four days, hours many long hours. Yeah. Um, so 99% of the hunt was filled with, man, we are not seeing anything. I've got very little sign to work with. You know, I, I am really a, what I love about deer hunting in a lot of ways is the analytical, uh, it's the chess match. It's trying to understand all the different pieces. It's studying the playing, studying the board and figuring out how to move these pieces around and where these pieces are and what they mean and, and all that. And I kept, as we're going through this hunt, I felt like I was hunting blind. There's so little new data to work with. There's almost no sign at all. So it's not like I could scout until I find hot sign because yeah. you know, one little rub might be the best we're going to find. And, and how do you interpret that? Yeah, uh, I wasn't going to be able to scout around until I bumped a bunch of deer. I wasn't going to see four, five, six, seven deer doing different things and be able to pattern what they're doing like you might in other places. Yeah. So much of this time I was sitting here just going back and forth in my head about you know what to do and how to do it and how we're going to make the most of this and how it's somehow going to come together. And, and what it came down to in the end, and basically where my head was at at 9 a.m. on that fourth day, was I'm not really in control here. I can do a few things right. There's a few things that I can trust in. I'm going to trust the terrain, trust the saddle. I'm going to you know, trust my basic instincts as a hunter to, to be in the right place with the right vantage point and, and make sure we're doing the right thing in the moment so that if some opportunity did come along, we'd be ready for it. But what I was telling myself, literally the words in my mind were just wait and see what the mountain gives you. Just going to see what the mountain gives you. And it might be a doe. It might be nothing at all. And we're just going to have an experience out here and just going to enjoy this trip for what it was, but we're not going to kill anything. I just had done an interview to camera talking about this very thing, talking about how my dad was always really good at this. And that when I was a kid sitting with my dad, I, I just always remember him and I, I would find him like annoyingly upbeat about it because he would be, man, this is the most beautiful sky. Golly, look at these leaves. This is just <laughs> terrific weather. And we'd be sitting out there. We hadn't seen a deer for six hours or something. And I'm thinking, we should be seeing more deer. Why isn't this going better? And dad would just be jawing about, you know, what a great maple candy this was or whatever. He was just <laughs> always great at enjoying, enjoying the experience and the surroundings. And I've always been very goal-oriented, very uh, achievement-oriented. And so I naturally have, I have to work hard to like take a step back and just soak in things for what they are without like striving for the next thing. And so I was speaking to the camera just about how I need to be a little more like my dad in this moment, because this seems like the kind of place that requires that. Mm -hmm. And, and really this is the kind of place that helps uh, teach you to, to, to live like that a little bit. And yeah. I was kind of accepting of that and thinking to myself, man, we, we're down to just one more day or less half day or whatever it was. And in my heart of hearts, I knew it was going to be a real long shot to, to get something killed. And uh, just moments after that, minutes after that, here comes that buck. So, you know, I don't know what you want to call it, but I, I, I kind of look that buck as a gift. You know, in this kind of hunting, you can't be validated by seeing game. I say mm -hmm. that all the time, even with bear hunting in national forest, deer hunting in national forest. And part of hunting is it's so fun to hunt in game-rich areas. Yeah. So, like, there's no, it's so fun to sit and watch a lot of deer, but you have to go way backwards to be successful 
in the in the mountains you're just not going to see a lot of deer mm-hmm. you know but I, I think that's a good thing I, I i like to be able to go from both worlds because there's places i hunt in arkansas where we do see if i don't see a deer when i'm hunting i'm, I'm in the wrong spot just because yep. you ought to be seeing deer every day you know every every sit you know every couple hours you know in the mountains not so you know you're just looking for that one chance at a deer so yep. anyway good job man this it was, was a awesome. lot of fun i can't thank you enough and then we hauled the deer out on Izzy's back. Yep. We pulled the old uh, rib slit behind the shoulder, put the deer over the saddle horn. Izzy yeah. hauled the deer out. And you said to me, this is how they haul dead people out of here, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Drape them over the saddle. Yeah. 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 Um, and skinned it with James Warner Lawrence. Glenn. Warner Glenn. Legend. What did you say? I you said you, you skinned it with James Lawrence. Yeah. And then we went, we took it back to James's house. Oh, yeah. We, we got we to gotta say something. Man, James Lawrence, of all the people I hunt with, he is the best at very genuinely convincing you that he is more excited than you are about the thing that you've done. And he's no, he's no, I wanted to say respecter of persons, but like he doesn't really even know Mark. And he genuinely was pumped for Mark. He was giving you a hug. He yeah. shook your hand and gave you a big hug. He saying, I, I think I'm more excited than you are. He's yeah. got a bigger smile than you do. Yeah. yeah. He, yeah. He, he's the perfect mentor in that sense. Mm-hmm. He'll, he'll always be excited for you when you need it. Yeah. Man, that's, a, that's something that I aspire to be like. Because you can't fabricate it. You can't. It's not just like I said in this Warner Glenn podcast segue here, boys. He's a pro. Well. He's a pro, gentlemen. Look at that. You. You can string words together in English and say sentences that may be the right words, but if those words aren't connected to something really authentic, we all know it. I want to work on being that supportive and genuine inside of my interest in what other people are doing, and and boy, you can't fabricate it. It's got to really be... like James, I believe, was really pumped that Mark came, killed a deer here, and, you know, because he could have said, oh, wow, Mark, I'm proud of you. That's great. Good he, job. He ended his hunt early, knowing we were driving up to his driveway. He got yeah. out of his stand, came to see us. He was like Jones in because he knew Mark killed something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know how I know that you are genuinely interested and excited about what somebody has to say? What Play do new. do? You do this. And anybody that listens to your podcast will know this. Oh, no. You go, hmm. That's what you do. Hmm. You got a you got a real solid mmm sound that you use a lot. Mmm. Mmm, Mark. Mm. If you listen back. You think I need to tone this back a little bit? No, it's good. No, no, no. It's your thing. That's pre recorded. Someone just hits a button. Yeah, it's a, <laughs> mm. <laughs> Phil, are you, it's a uh, soundboard. The laugh track. Mmm. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> I try to teach my kids to be it's important in communication to be to give feedback to people. Yeah. Firm. Like, like, I'm not talking to that rock on the wall. You know, there's a no, that's mantle Tyler. there. That's me. Uh, yep. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I want to. I want to. I want some. I want some feedback. So I like to go. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Warner Glenn. This was the second podcast in our series, and I love highlighting people like Warner Glenn. Mark asked me yesterday. To, he was like, "So give me the a general sense of like why Warner Glenn would be a well known guy." In it's not like he's done like one thing that made him who he is. It was more just the totality of who he is and what he represents. Part of it is his age to me that he's so special, like in today's time, 
like the older that somebody gets, the further back that their that their perspectives go. And is the modern world continues to progress at like this incredibly rapid pace. I feel like some of these some of these people that really have a time stamp on their life in the earth for the kind of view that they have of this planet. It it, it we we every day we lose these people. And so I I do feel a burden almost to to talk to some of these guys just to see I mean, like, how do you view the world? Mm-hmm. You know, what what is it like inside of your life? And, and interviewing Mr. Warner was like that for me. And uh, he's he represents so much. But, Andreas, you've listened to both the podcasts. Mm-hmm. What did you think of him? So you just said something interesting. He, he's lived a very authentic life close to the land. And historically, success has been around how well you can live within your resources. As time moves forward and we modernize, that success has shifted away from like being close to the land to all the other things we've fabricated to have a successful excuse me, a successful society. And so I think that's why he's so special because his success is around his survival and his authenticity where modern success doesn't fall within that. So I think that's why I feel strongly about these stories as well. Because it's so contrast to what has uh, evolved in the pace we exist in, in the consumption, and someone like Warner Glenn has self-created. Obviously, he he fell into that ranch because of his ancestors, but he has perpetuated his existence, and that's what's important. Yeah. I, I think that's something interesting that everybody here has also done. You know, we're all sitting here because we have perpetually pursued our existence to be shooting a film or to be creating a, a brand around bear hunting or white-tailed deer. And so it's a little bit more modern what we do. Guys like Warner Glenn have, are inspirational in that sense. Mm-hmm. That's my take. Yeah. Yeah, I like what really what really stood out is that he he does something unique that I think is kind of lost in, in modern culture and that's being like tied to his property, his animals, so that you know, he wakes up and sort of repeats the same thing, be it waking up at 4 a.m. and saddling the mules and running the dogs. Like, he's really tied to his place. And he's been doing that, you know, it seems repetitious. He does that every day. You've got to run the dogs. You've got to feed your animals. You've got to tend your land. And uh, But it, it's obviously given him, like, a deep sense of peace and longevity. He's been doing it for eight eight decades, right? And, I, you know, I think f- folks now, every it's that rush to, you know, work hard, work hard, retire, and then it's leisure time, but he's, you know, it's obvious. It seems like it's extended his life and his well being by just simply repeating that every day and having that connection to his property and his animals. And, you know, he's tied to his land. Did you hear when he said, uh, he was talking about the reward of doing the kind of work that he does. Mm -hmm. And he said, if you're interested in monetary type rewards, that was the phrase that he used. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. Then you probably don't want to be a dry ground line hunter and a rancher. I like that because in today's world, it's almost as if there's only one option for what most people are thinking about, which would be monetary type rewards. And, and, and I'm not saying everybody thinks like that, but I would say the vast majority of people, their lives are dominated by this idea that money is going is the end goal and that money is going to be what gives them the freedom that they want. 
and that is the American way. That is the that is the Western philosophy that is deep, deep, deep. Even if you think you don't do it, you probably that's somewhere. And I, I like it that Warner was just like, if that's the way, you know, he's like, there there are two ways to look at life. You could you could look at the monetary type reward system, or you could, and and I asked him, I said, what what is the reward for your lifestyle? Because he. He said it, he's not doing it for the money. So, like, what, what's your reward? And that's when he went into talking about the beauty of the land, and he talked about uh, the creator, and he talked about seeing the complexity of nature. He talked about things connected to the tides and the moons, and when a little fawn yeah. is born. You know, he kind of he kind of got poetic there for a minute. Well, don't you feel that the monetary pursuit is a very post-industrial revolution, post-war? cultural effect like right it's because we've become so productive that we have that luxury of creating uh, another form of survival game yeah but he doesn't have that luxury or he didn't choose to take on that lifestyle so in a sense he, he has found re- small rewards every day and throughout time and he's built his own reward system that you kind of need that when you're surviving off the land in arizona what did you guys think about Kelly, Kelly Glenn Kimbrough, with her being in movies and being the Ruger girl? That was pretty cool, wasn't it? Yeah, just a wild uh, set of circumstances, though, that families found themselves in. You know, you wouldn't necessarily expect that this ranching family from down on the border would get tangled up in that kind of stuff, but they're more Hollywood than Andreas in some ways. <laughs> <laughs> wow. More Hollywood than Andreas. Thank God. I think she just she said yes to unique opportunities that maybe other folks wouldn't have the tenacity to do so. Like at the time, like her getting involved with Ruger when it was a really like, you know, male dominated industry and just taking that chance and being like, Yeah, yeah, I'll go for it and, and being really successful at it. I think that's admirable. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with what Matt said. The opportunity, the seizing the opportunity, I imagine that they have become very good at that. She yeah. stayed though, even through the Hollywood thing, it was cool that she still was just come back and drag around lion hunting and you know, she didn't move to Hollywood and fly off, you know, right after the sunset. She kind of kept her roots through it all. I thought that was kind of cool. You can't take time off. There's always work to do, especially in in that environment. They teach you that in LA? No, they teach you that. I mean, I have a (laughs) bunch of friends who are ranchers myself. (laughs) I I admire the work effort and the, I mean, I like working. I, I think it's admirable to have a pursuit and become good at it. And be very consistent. Consistency is everything in life. If you're consistent, you'll find your own success. Success is such a perverse word now. I mean, we, we should be able to find success in everything, even small, even big. And we shouldn't compare our success to others because then you'll never understand true happiness. I fall victim to that too, right? I think we all do in the sense of the modern environment. But however, I think they, they know that to be successful every day, they need to get up. All right, this well needs to be fixed. That fence needs to be fixed. I need to get my mules out here or whatever they need to do. It's not a lifestyle I want to live, but I admire it greatly. Mm-hmm. You know yeah. what Warner said that stuck with me more than anything? It was right at the end of the episode, and it hit me like a pile of rocks. It spoke to me probably because of the headspace I've been in lately. But you said something along the lines of, you know, what's, what's the secret to a good life or something like that? Mm-hmm. And he sat there. I think he chuckled, and he said, you know what? It's just to not worry about so many things. There's just not a lot of things worth worrying too much about in life. You know, he went on a little bit from there about 
the simple things are often what matter the most and getting all wound up about all the others it's just a quick way to get stressed out and and worried yeah. and and lose sight of the good stuff and and I'm you know so guilty of that so often yeah. over worrying over thinking et cetera et cetera and it was just it was just like the thing that I needed to hear after you know six days of stressing about this thing stressing about that thing and uh and yeah, I mean, so much of our lives, whether we worrying about financial success, worrying about career success, worrying about how many points our kids going to score in the basketball game, or worry about am I going to do this in a way that these people will think's right, or that these people will will like, or whatever. And so much of it's so trivial, and people don't care about most of these other things. We build these these false idols in our mind of of what matters or what other people will think about us, and and all we're doing is is perpetuating our own misery. Mm-hmm. And uh, if we could all live like Warner a little bit more, not worry about as much, focus on a few important things, do them well, do them right, be there with your family, and enjoy it all for what it is. Mm-hmm. Man, that's that's how you get to 85 and be riding 175,000 miles a, in a lifetime and killing yeah. 1,200 lions and just finding what you love and doing it and doing it yeah. well and let the chips fall where they may on everything else. You know, that statement that Warner made, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I've thought about that a lot since I was there with him because somebody else could have said that and I, it would have just been like a cliche answer. But I, I knew when he said it, he meant it. And he even said, he said, it's really hard to do. He mm-hmm. said, it's hard not to worry about stuff. Yeah. And I, I've analyzed that because it's, it's, it is very hard. I think everybody worries. I mean, like I have a really good life. I feel like I have a really stable life. I worry about stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, that would be like a something, and, and somebody could be like, "What are you worrying about? You know, you got a good family, you got a good job, you got this." We it's human nature. It's perspective. Human nature is to worry about stuff, mm-hmm. and I I think his point, and and I think it would be backed by modern science, is that anxiety and worry is probably one of the biggest health risks that we have long term. Mm-hmm. It's just this weight on us that is about us all the time yeah. it definitely does not help you live long time yeah. like anxiety will take years off your life what i what i've thought about and how to deal with that stuff is like think about all the stuff you worry about and then think about the resolution of that thing whether it would, it would even be like a year later do you a year from now will you remember the worry about the deer culture film yeah yeah you know what i mean like so it's like can you skip the middleman? And just say, you know what? I'm just going to try the best I can. I'm going to hunt as hard as I can for the three days every place I've got, and like skip the middleman of worry. Yeah, you know, there's it's hard two, to do. There's yeah, it is hard. To, there's two things that I've I've found picked up from folks that I found helpful, kind of exercises of sorts that can kind of help snap you out of that thinking. So one thing's known as fear setting. You ever heard of fear setting? Mm-mm. So you look at a situation. Let's say I'm stressed out because I don't think I'm going to kill a buck on this hunt. And this episode is going to suck and my show is not going to do all of that. So fear setting would be where you think, okay, there's this thing you're worried about. What's the worst case scenario? Like you've played out all the potential scenarios of what could happen here. Like what's the worst thing that could happen? All right. So let's say I don't kill a buck and I'm a lousy TV show host and the show doesn't do good and nobody likes it. What's the worst thing that happens? Well, maybe the show tanks and I don't do shows anymore and I have to go do some other stuff. I do podcasts or I write books or I whatever. Is that that bad? Is that the end of the world? Still got an amazing family, still got a job, still get to do fun things. Like you just look and oftentimes the things you worry about are so silly and trivial and the absolute worst case scenario isn't even that bad. 
So all of a sudden you say, okay, can I live with that outcome? Yeah, it'd be fine. It's not that big of a deal. The other thing is the perspective shifting where I just think about something that actually matters. So anytime I'm stressed out or worried about something or if I make a dumb mistake, the quickest way I've found to snap myself out of it is, all right, let's say I miss a deer or I wound a deer or I don't kill a deer or I flunk a whatever. And that bitter pill is hard to swallow. I'm sitting there wallowing in it. If I can remember to just like look at a picture of my kids or just call the boys, like something like that right there is like, man, all that other stuff is nothing compared to this. If you can just shift your perspective to to the core, the very most important things, and you realize, wow, I would sacrifice everything else just as he'll have that. My mm. sons, my family. Yeah. So those two things are little tools that have helped me a lot. Yeah. Because I would be so susceptible to, I am just like my natural personality but type. I think success, I'm sorry, failure is not an option for you. I think you, no matter what, you'll find how to turn something into success. You've been doing True. this for a long time. You have that mentality. Uh, I, I think a lot of us here do. We we don't allow this idea of failure to be an exit point because that's giving up is a terminal illness, mm-hmm. you know? So. so yeah, if it's not plan A, it'll be plan B. If not B, we'll find a C. Adapting. Not C, then D. I think you're very good at adapting and it's there's nothing wrong with feeling bad. It's helpful to feel bad. Otherwise, how do you gauge what feels good? Mm-hmm. As long as you can turn that bad feeling into a problem solving. And you're a really good problem solver, Mark. I mean, you too, Clay. Thanks, everybody Andrew. here. Oh, I, think thanks, Andrew. I think everybody thanks, here Andrew. is a good problem solver. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. Clay, I got a question for you. Yeah. So you got to spend some time with him and his family. You yeah. were there in person. Is there anything you took away from that, spending time with him, learning from him, that you would apply to your own life? Was there like a nugget or a lesson that you really... 100%. And I, and I said this... In less words on the on the podcast, I was impacted by by the demeanor of Warner Glenn's humility, and I think it partly was my expectation. I'd never met the man before. Western cowboy, dry ground lion hunter, tough guy. I expected, and I said this: I expected a a a proud man, not a bad man, not a prideful man, but just a guy that just was like. Uh, I am who I am, and and what I saw was a humble man. And there were multiple things that happened, even off when we weren't recording, that made me think, like, would I have responded that way? One of them, and this sounds so small, but sometimes small stuff impacts you. I asked him what color one of his mules were, and he said, I'd call it Strawberry Roan. And then he said, you're a mule man, what would you call her? And I, I just thought, that's a dumb question. I'm not a mule man. You're the mule man. And he was genuinely interested in what my interpretation of the color of this mule that he'd had on his farm for the last 15 years. And I, I guess just right where I'm at in my life, I was uh, I have worked on boldness and confidence as a, as a thing. Moving out of insecurity and fear movement towards boldness and confidence which if you swing the pendulum too far you become arrogant and think you know it all here's this guy that should have did have boldness and confidence but also had no problem with me this young guy that doesn't know anything like telling him what color his mule was that uh, his humility impact the way he carried himself he deflected praise 
Like I would say, hey, Malpai Borderlands Group, you started this. You were this main guy, which he was. He totally deflected that. And and I, I see places in my life where I'm I, I'm not wanting to deflect praise. And that's the stuff that'll get inside of your heart and screw you over because it 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 you're building a case for yourself that like I, I am something special. I mean I, I am good at that. And and it's 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 okay to be good at stuff and it's okay to know your capacity and have that confidence of, you know, I'm competent in this. But pride and confidence, there's a fine line between it. And I think I think we can go we can go the wrong way. And I, what I saw in Warner Glenn was uh, great boldness and confidence, but also a deep humility. And again, it goes. To, it's one of those things that you could say the words that he said, and if it was connected back to a guy that really deep in his heart was prideful, it wouldn't have impacted me. But I saw a humility inside of him. The real question is, Clay, what color did you think that mule was? I had no idea, and I told him. I said, "I don't know." <laughs> uh, I, I it was uh, he called it a strawberry, strawberry roan. roan, and I I agreed with him, but I would not have. Uh, I and probably somebody more versed in the equine world would have been able to. It was it was kind of a reddish base color, but a lot of white dappled into it. So yeah, do you have a, a photo of that mule? Uh huh. Yeah, you should post it on Instagram and ask the world. Well, well I. There's no need to. Warner told me it's strawberry <laughs> roan, man. Well, I'm just curious. It's like their blue dress, black dress. Yeah, yeah. Maybe people see different yeah. rays of color. Hey, um, what did you guys think about Warner getting in a fight with a border patrol agent? I think that is a amazing story, and that if that happens now, that person would never see a lot of date again. And, and and that's kind of sad because it was a personal interpersonal conflict between two people who had had history together. And sometimes something so simple like that could could just relieve a bunch of stress or or de-escalate in a weird sense in 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 a different environment. It could be a de-escalating scenario instead of an escalating one. You know, where verbally they could have been assaulting each other, and maybe for the type of people they were, it would have been much worse. So you're saying like this like solved the problem they had. I think and it, it should have been okay. I like, no no I'm, I'm, I'm not saying, I'm not saying it's okay. Like, no 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 I'm not saying that's okay. I said <laughs> it sounds like they had a relationship. Yeah. That was escalating towards that. Yeah. And I think they were both consenting to that kind of relationship. They, they could have definitely solved it just by behaving differently, but yeah. neither of them at that time wanted to. So there, I, I, that's what I perceive hey, it as. The, the details of the story were this. We we didn't get into the actual details of the story. So this is like big open country. We they use that phrase, but it's true. It's just big open country. Well, they have roads through the farm, and one of these roads had a gate on it that just inhibited vehicular traffic on the road, just so somebody that's not supposed to be there could just drive down the road. So it wasn't keeping cattle out. It wasn't doing anything. Well, Warner goes to his gate and he sees that someone has driven around the gate and driven on the road. And he sees tire tracks on his grass. And out there, grass is a very valued commodity for cattle. And so he's like, somebody drove on my grass. And he had actually, like, sometime before, had talked to the Border Patrol because they come on his land freely, constantly, because of where he lives on the border. And he had told, he had seen, so two or three months prior, he'd seen tracks just driving through one of his fields. He sees a Border Patrol agent, and he says, hey, I saw some strange tracks in my field. And the guy goes, it was me. And Warner goes, hey, 
no problem. Do you mind next time trying to stay on the road? And the guy, this is a different guy than he fought. The guy says, no problem. I'm sorry. It was a mistake. Two months later, Warner goes to this gate. He sees tracks going around the gate, which the, they had a key to the gate. So they could have just unlocked the gate and went through it. This new Border Patrol agent says, yeah, it was me. I drove around the gate. That's how it started. And then mm. Warner's like, well, sir, you have a key. I have given you permission to come on my land. As a cattle rancher, I've asked you not to drive on my grass. That's the way I make a living. And then the guy spouts off and goes, I can do whatever I want. I misunderstood that story. I thought it was the same guy. I thought it was a a, a conflict that had Well, it, the time. conflict was just with the agency mm. driving on his land. But so there was couple of guys that were like no just like absolutely sir our fault our bad this guy came in with an attitude and was like i can do whatever i want on your land because i'm who i am and i wear this uniform and that's that's what made warner mad oh okay i i, I misunderstood the story i, I retract my statement well I, I think i think it could your statement still made sense to me well i i just feel like it's it's dangerous because what happened is warner had conflict with so, uh, uh, organization of people and this man for whatever reason triggered that negative energy I, I don't think you should be disrespectful when he's allowing you it's private land he's allowing you to take access and he's been so generous to you I, I think there's there's other ways of doing things sure and I don't want to hit somebody I don't think that's a very nice thing I don't think he thought it was a nice thing either but he he could just been having a bad day. I, I I struggled a little bit with putting it in there because it's it's not like we want to like highlight and say someone's a hero for beating up a law enforcement guy. Yeah, that, that's actually the opposite. It's the opposite of everything. It's the opposite of what I'm saying about Warner Glenn being a humble man. That is the opposite of humility. It's also the opposite of just in general. You're not going to want to do that in your life. Uh, I don't mean to interrupt, but I was going to say what I think showcased what you're speaking of, though, is how he processed what happened and how he spoke to you about it afterwards. Yeah. And the fact that he said, you know what? Yeah, I, I got I had to own it. I took my I took my lumps. I made a mistake. Uh, I became better for it. You know, knows he shouldn't have done it. Now he was hot in the moment. Think and- about all the different options. Like think really in your life of the people that you know. And somebody, let me just get, okay, option A, like there's different endings for this book. The book to this point goes to Warner Glenn getting in a fist fight and sure enough, rubbing his face in the dirt. Did you, I, did you like how he said mm-hmm. that? I thought it was a real cowboy way to say it. He was just like, I put his face in the dirt. He's, he, so option one is he gets in trouble. He defends himself to the point of like, I was justified in this. I don't care what you say. And he becomes bitter the rest of his life at the at the feds. And that bitterness would translate into him giving them trouble for the next 80 years of his life. Mm-hmm. He stays up at night thinking about ways that he's going to stick it to the Border Patrol. That would be a very likely response. I mean, think about it. Some old cowboy out in the desert, that is a very real possibility. And then maybe there's just two endings. The other ending is the guy going, I made a mistake. This guy was, you know, the guy was in the wrong, sure. In this individual little sector, this guy, yeah, was probably a punk, but it was a mistake. And he wasn't embittered against the Border Patrol. He has a great relationship with the Border Patrol, but his ability to bounce back from doing something wrong, which that is a human trait that is a high, is a very valuable trait because 
everybody's going to mess stuff up. So much of your life is not getting it right every time, but how are you going to respond when you do something wrong? Because, man, bitterness is like the, and I think that's part of what maybe Warner was insinuating, talking about when the first thing that came out of his mouth when I asked him, what's the secret to having a good life? He, he said, don't worry about stuff. I think that could be, I think people sometimes become embittered or fearful or hurt in some way by real negative interactions. But to be able to take that, grow from it, learn from it, and then sometimes I think in somebody's life, maybe the conclusion that you come to isn't always as direct in the person's mind. But in the book, there's a book written about Warner Glenn called Warner Glenn, The Life and Times of an American Cowboy, I think is what it's called. The, the author, Ed Ashurst, is the one who made the conclusion that that interaction, when Warner was 47 years old, scripted the next, well, you know, now almost 40 years later in his life because he became very skillful at dealing with people that were in opposition to him, which he said he used to have a really volatile temper. It was an inflection point for him. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe in Warner's, you know, I mean, if you talk to him, you know, it's not like he probably was just like, I will now change and become a great diplomat to the federal government. Like, <laughs> but it, but it impacted him. And he, he, he became somebody that was very influential in that part of the world. And they were known for bringing together groups that hated each other and were at odds with each other, bringing them in, man, guys like Warner, Wherever they go, it seems like they bring stability and peace. Just like, just just an ability to just like walk into it. Just like Warner Glenn riding up on uh, his, you know, banditos carrying drugs across the border. Like he didn't get killed. He didn't. The situ, you know, somebody could have gone to that and blew that situation up. Pulled their gun. What are you guys doing? You got drugs? I mean, you know, freaked out or something, or ran away or. Warner just rides up on his mule and is just like, hey, you know, hola, amigos. Got some drugs? Okay. Well, we're just lion hunting. See any lion tracks? Ride past. Just just to de-escalate the situation. So that's what he learned to do, which before maybe his, his thing was to escalate it. It sounds to me like he's a really good leader, and it sounds like his daughter has uh, acquired those skills from him. Did you get that impression when you were around them? Sure. Yeah, for sure. Just hearing her talk about her father or talking about the the work or the activities they do, it just felt like she really benefited from his uh, his state of mind mm-hmm. and has learned a lot. And I, I think that's super attractive. I imagine he had a lot of miles in the saddle to think about and replay that whole experience. Mm-hmm. Like with the agent, like he's, he, you know, when he's out riding the range and looking for lions, I'm, I, I, I doubt he's got headphones on listening to a podcast. He's probably just <laughs> reflecting on his life. He listens to Bear Grease. Yeah, of course. He's obviously. listening right now to you saying that. But uh, yeah, I imagine he had a lot of alone time to really think about that, what impact that had on his life and how that could have gone in a, in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Like just being able to sit quietly with yourself and reflect on that, that probably yeah helped him come to that conclusion. Mm-hmm. I got a kick out of uh, how when he told his old man about the experience. Yeah. His old man's like, I, I can't do that to a law enforcement officer. Yeah, yeah. That was- yeah. You wonder, you wonder where like where that came from. <laughs> yeah. He's like, wait, you can't. Like, <laughs> I, I thought that was. I, I kept that in there so much. But I, I liked it because his dad took his side. You know, his dad could have been mad at him. Yeah, his oh, dad could have been like, 
corner. You're jeopardizing our whole life. You could, you know, he could have been, he could have scolded him. He could have, but his first response was to take the side of his son, which that could have gone either way too. I mean, it seems natural that you'd take the side of your son, but not necessarily. I, I thought it was his way of explaining to his son that it's okay. Yeah. In a very, very nice, relaxed manner. Man, do you think there's some old retired Border Patrol agent that's like, oh man, like father, like son, like Marvin's had a dust up before and he's like, <laughs> yeah, probably not to throw shade on Marvin. I doubt that happened, but yeah. Well, guys, thanks for, uh, thanks for being guests on the Bear Grease podcast. This is, You're this welcome. has been good. You guys are like the astronauts gone to the moon. Thank you for having us, Clint. Yeah, thank, thank you a million times for, for not only having us on the show, but having us at your family home, taking us out to your mountains, showing us the ropes. It's been a it's been a treat. Yeah, well, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, true. Shout out to Gary and Judy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thanks Judy to Izzy as well. Yep, yep, yep. If we'd had a seventh mic or an eighth mic, we'd have had Judy and Gary on here with us. But uh, next time, next time, you, you really need to. Um, maybe you already have because I haven't got to listen to all the render episodes. But the world needs to know about Gary's detail oriented white tail. Were you impressed? I was. Really impressed. Your dad <laughs> is way more whitetail gear savvy than you are, Clay. Oh, whitetail <laughs> gear for sure. Yeah, he, he's he's in it, nuanced. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And see, oh man, we we've now started a whole nother segment of the podcast. Part two. I am the way I am because he's the way he is. You went the opposite direction. I really did. I I will just lay out this illustration. This one simple thing told me so much about Clay. When we packed up camp to head in to go hunt in the mountains, and he had his climbing sticks. They were loose. There were ropes everywhere, and he was just shoving individual single sticks into the panniers of the horse. And I'm thinking, <laughs> man, is this how you operate? And so, got to fit him in there, Mark. Yeah, different strokes for different folks. And your dad's though talking about how he's drilling his climbing sticks to reduce weight, and he's using am steel ropes to be as quiet as possible, and discussing how he saw a photo of how I stacked my sticks on the back of my backpack and how envious it made him and how he wanted to find <laughs> new ways to organize and stack his sticks. Hey, I, I would say this in front of my dad, so this is, this is not like hiding something, but like his the way he handled hunting stressed me out <laughs> as a kid. Because we, we had to, I mean, it's classic father-son stuff. Uh-huh. We had to, you know, try to meet his standards for stuff. Yep. And it, it stressed me out. And so when I left the coop, when I went to college and started hunting on my own, I went into a season of life that my hunting was very shortened because I had a family and was trying to build a career in life. And I had to determine what were the limiting fact, true limiting factors of my hunting. And I cut off a bunch of stuff. And I don't tell anybody, but I actually killed way more deer. <laughs> All right. Are no you one gets a rebuttal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you guys very good yeah, appreciate great it. week thank you Clay keep the wild places wild because that's where the deer go through the saddles this show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp around New Year's we get obsessed with how to change ourselves instead of just expanding on what we've already done right Maybe you finally organized one part of your space and you want to tackle another. Or maybe you're taking your supplements every morning and now you actually want to eat breakfast. In the last year, I've been more diligent 
about going to the gym on a regimented schedule, and it's made a lot of difference in my life. Therapy helps you find your strengths so that you can ditch the extreme resolutions and make changes that really stick. Therapy is helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself. It isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Celebrate the progress you've already made. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Grease today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Grease. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.